Uh, six months or so ago, one of the uh, bathtubs in our house was having a leaky faucet, the bathtub, and it was just dripping. It was a slow drip. And when I noticed it, I realized, well, this is not going to go away on its own, so I might as well try to figure out what's happening here and how to fix it. So I called a friend who's a lot more handy than I am, and I explained the situation, and he said, well, here's what you should try. Uh, he said, you basically need to replace the cartridge, which is you know behind the handle in the bathtub. It's like a couple inches long. You need to go buy a new one, and it'll fix your leak. So I go to Lowe's. I buy one. Um, I put it in myself, and lo and behold, Mr. Unhandy himself stopped the leak. Thank you. All right. Until I turned the water on and turned it back off, and it still happened. Now, it was less, but it was still happening. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll try it again. Uh, and so I took the cartridge out again a second time after having to go to Lowe's a second time to buy another tool because you can't, like, pull it out on your own. So I take it out again, put it back, and the leak actually got worse. The drip was actually getting worse. So I'm like, okay. So I called my friend again. I said, I replaced it. It's not working. And he said, well, what kind of cartridge did you buy? And I named the thing. He's like, no, no, no. You need to buy the exact same one that the company that made the faucet has. You can't buy a third party because it'll keep leaking. And I'm thinking, well, I don't, that doesn't make sense because then they wouldn't sell them if it wouldn't fix the problem. But okay. So I go back to Lowe's and I buy the one that's actually made by the same company that bought the fa- that made the, the, made the faucet and all that sort of thing. It was $7 more. I didn't know the difference. So I, you know, the first one was 40 bucks. This one was $47. I was like, I wish I would have known that. I would have bought this the first time. So I go back home, try to fix it again. Nothing worked. And so my friend, either that day or the next day, comes over. Now, he's trying to help me with the leak. He knows more about these things than I do. He takes the cartridge out, the new one, uh, puts it back in, and it's still dripping. And we're like, well, man, we're not sure what we do. And then we hear Christina downstairs saying, oh, there's water coming from the ceiling in the kitchen. So somehow, some way, not only was the leak still happening, but water like gotten under the bathtub and was like discoloring the ceiling of our kitchen. Right, so it kept getting worse. Eventually, I called a plumber, and he's like, well, I can come out. It's going to be like $175, and I'm like, I don't care. I've tried everything. I can't fix it. I don't know what's happening. So he comes the next day or so. Uh, I was at work. Christina was home. Uh, he was there for a total of five minutes, uh, and the problem was essentially there was like a piece of dust or debris in the little faucet area that he took out with his finger. He just like pulled it right out. So I'm like, great, all this money spent for a piece of dust that, that I could have maybe, obviously I could not have, but maybe somebody else <laughs> could have fixed. Now, I share that story because every single time I tried to stop the leak and fix the problem, it got worse. Either I had to spend more money or, you know, the ceiling has changed colors now. There's, like, it, it didn't fix the problem, it actually got worse. Now, this morning we're continuing our time in the book of Exodus that we started last week. Uh, and last week we saw some good things, right? We saw the beginning. Uh, I'm not going to be one of those pastors that say you should go back and listen to the message if you weren't here. But if I were to, if I were to be one of those people, I would say you should go back and listen to it. Uh, because we, 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 we briefly ran through the book of Genesis to show us what is happening in Exodus. The first five books of the Bible are what is known as the Pentateuch. Uh, they're one kind of book, if you will, within Scripture that, that explains to us the forming of Israel, the nation of Israel, from which the Messiah would come to save the world. And so we saw last week that Exodus chapter 1 begins with 70 descendants of Israel. So Abram was called by God. He said, out of you, I'll make a great nation. He has one kid named Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then from Jacob, or from Israel, we now have 70 Israelites who have made their way to Egypt because Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, uh, had been in Egypt before them and had led the Egyptians through a massive famine and plague. And so the family gets reconnected. They moved to Egypt. And last week was great, right? They were beginning to, to multiply and to grow. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Exodus chapter 1 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you on page 47 there, and you can take that one home if you don't own one. It is our gift to you. 
So Exodus chapter 1, we'll start in verse 7 again to pick us up from last week. Verse 7 ends like this. It says, But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. So they go from 1 to 70, and they're beginning to grow and to multiply. Things are good, and this is the last bit of good news that they're going to hear and have for a while. Verse 8, it then says this. A new king who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so a new pharaoh arrives, doesn't have a relationship with Joseph at all, and in fact sees the Israelites growing in number. And then he says, well, they're becoming more numerous and powerful. We have to do something about it. Now, numerous and powerful here is most likely an exaggeration. It's not that the Israelites were actually bigger or more numerous than the Egyptians. But what's happening here is that the pharaoh is trying to incite fear because the Israelites were incited. in some sense of the word, becoming a nation within the nation. So they were growing, and they were outsiders, and they were different. And so as outsiders, what, they should be controlled. Uh, They should not be allowed to take over uh, because because they don't want them to, to be slaves to the Israelites. They want to make sure the Israelites stay kind of in their corner, if you will. And because what we see happening here is further growth is a threat. Like the Pharaoh just assumes they're growing, and so we have to do something about them. Now, this is uh, maybe the type of propaganda that we see all throughout human history, is that w- w- when one group wants to oppress another group within a country or within a nation, you begin to f- define that group differently. You talk about them being a threat. You talk about them being different. You th- talk about them not having the same ideals as you do. And so when you do that, uh, you, you, you essentially encourage a hostile treatment to those people in that nation for everybody. Right? When you describe them as a threat, it's more easy to control them and more easy to do things differently to them so that they don't rise in power and so that you can keep them kind of secluded where they are, right? That's what they're trying to do. The problem here in verse 10 when it says that they might fight out, fight against us and leave the country, uh, you know, the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew in, in our case to English. Uh, leave the country there is not like, it's not, it's probably not saying that he's afraid that they're, le- they're going to leave the country. What he's actually likely saying there is that he's afraid that the Israelites are going to take over, right? The problem is not them leaving the country. The problem is taking over Egypt. Uh, and so that's what he's afraid of. He doesn't want that to happen. And so we have to oppress them. We have to uh, br- bring them down, if you will, so that we can control them and keep them where they are. So here's what he says next, verse 11. Here's what happens next. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So again, what we see happening here is the first step in oppression is to reduce uh, the status of a people or a group. 
right? So making them slaves obviously reduces their socioeconomic status and any influence they might have had will go away because now they are slaves to everyone else. This is supposed to lower the threat level. Plus, what we see happening here is that they're, they're breaking up families. They're, they're shipping families off to different parts of Egypt to build other cities uh, for the Egyptians. And so you would think, in theory, not only will this suppress them, but this will stunt their population growth because they're breaking them apart. And what we see happening here is that the plan backfires, that the Pharaoh is trying to stop them from growing. And it actually says that the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiply, that Israel, Israel is growing, right? What we see happening here is God is using the, Israel, the Egyptians' oppression to the Israelites against them, right? Slave labor meant to tear families apart. They're, they're slaves, and yet the Israelites are growing. Now, I think it's interesting that we're landing on this passage today. Uh, maybe given everything that's been happening in 2020 in the United States, uh, and maybe even the events that happened this, this, this week itself uh, in Wisconsin with the shooting of another black man by police, what we see happening here, what we see happening throughout history is that there are a few things, if anything, in the world that robs, the, robs people of their dignity and value like legalized oppression. There's few things in the world that will rob people of their dignity and value, that they're created in God's image uh, to other people like legalized oppression. Right? So maybe a cliche example, a well-known example is the Holocaust, where we all would like to say we would have stand up to the Nazis, we would not have played a part in that. But what happened? Right? They, they said a people group were different, they're bad, they need to be controlled. And because it was kind of legalized that we did this, a lot of people played part in something that we would like to think that we wouldn't play part of, right? They said, this is what we're going to do, and it makes it easier for us when we see people different to treat them different, right? We talk about this in American history, right? When you define a human being as three-fifths of a human being, what do you expect is going to happen, right? And we'd like to assume, well, you know, the, the, the Civil War ended all that sort of thing, but what we see the few decades after the Civil War is different deals were made in Washington, D.C., and the North was taken out of the South, that, that now we can continue this oppression, this lynching, this killing, this segregation, because people are different than us. And you can see this all throughout history. We can talk about the civil rights movement. We say, well, well, slavery or racism kind of ended there uh, because now everyone has the equal right to vote, which they didn't have before. But what do we see happening in the 60s? You see with the segregation of schools, the rise of private schools, which, oh, by the way, all happen to be white. Right? You see black people not allowed to live in certain neighborhoods or not allowed to go to certain higher educations. Why? Because we see them as different. And when you see people as different, you can legalize taking away their dignity and their value. This is what happens when we say people are not all created image in the, created equal in the image of God. And that is what's happening here. Now, the paradox between what's happening here and what's going on is that this pain and this suffering and this oppression of the Israelites actually leads to their growth. Right? It's supposed to kind of stunt their growth. It's supposed to make them feel like or look like different people. And yet, they are actually growing in the midst of the pain and suffering and oppression. Right? It's actually because, as it says here, because of their oppression that they are growing. But what's interesting is that if you and I could go back and talk to the Israelites during these few decades that is happening in the verses that we're reading this morning, I don't think any of them would say, you know, a lot of bad stuff is happening. People are being killed, mistreated, beaten. Families are being torn apart. But we're growing, so it's worth it. Right? I don't think anybody 
would say that, and yet God is using this extremely difficult time to eventually lead the Israelites to turn back to God so that they can experience God do immeasurably more powerful and amazing things that they would, than, that, than, they, than they would have ordinarily seen if they hadn't gone through what they were going through. In other words, what we see happening here, and really a lot throughout the book of Exodus and all of Scripture, is that suffering can actually be God's grace to us. What we see here is that suffering can be, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though none of us would go out of our way to say, yes, I want bad things to happen to me, it actually can be God's grace to us. This is why, as we talked about last week, it's, it's helpful to have a, a, a whole view of Scripture and not just read ver- certain verses or, or certain stories out of their context, because then it can lead us to think that Scripture is saying something that it's not. What we see throughout the whole of Scripture is that people suffer. Godly people suffer. Faithful people suffer. And yet in that, God can be doing things that that, that would not have happened otherwise if we hadn't gone through what we were going through. What we see happening in the Israelites is that their suffering is what's going to lead them to cry out to God, which is going to allow them to experience God in ways that they never would have otherwise if life was just going as normal for them. Right? You and I might have stories like that. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, uh, the reason that you know Jesus or perhaps a time in your life where you've grown closer to Jesus is through difficulty and suffering that you have been, to, been through. What, what does it do? Suffering often shows us our need for God. It's not easy. We would not want it to happen, but it can show us our need for him. Right? Suffering can by, be God's grace to us. It doesn't mean it's fun and it's easy, but in those difficult times that it can allow us to refocus our eyes on him, to pursue him, which by the way, at the end of the day, if God cares for us, loves us, created us, uh, and created us to be in a relationship with him, that it is important for us to know him. And so if he uses difficult and hard times to bring us closer to him, or maybe bring us to him for the first time, it is actually God's grace to us, or at least it can be. And even though this is what's happening here is extremely difficult for the Israelites, what we're going to see as we continue through the book of Exodus, that amazing things are going to happen that they are going to experience because of their suffering. So here's what happens next in verse 15. It says, the king, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, again, they, they've, they've caused the slavery, the suffering, and they're continuing to grow. So now he comes up with another plan. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Sifra and the second whose name was Pua, when, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. And so the next step in this oppression is, at least secretly right now, population control, right? It's genocide. Let's kill these young boys so that this nation of Israel does not continue to grow. Now, why boys, you might ask? Boys and men, especially in that time, were the strength, were your country's military power and strength was tied into how many men you have. See, for the vast majority of young men in, in the ancient world, at some point in your life, you will be drafted into military service. And so if you have no, more boys, you can have more young men and you can have a bigger army. And so as the Pharaoh is seeing them, as a threat, as someone to be controlled. is like, well, if we take away all of their young boys, then if they ever have the idea to come against us, well, they won't be able to do it, right? Now, it starts as a secret, right? It's a kind of a secret way to do this, 
But as we're going to find out, that might it's not enough for what Pharaoh wants to do. Well, this is interesting as well. Again, as we talk about uh, maybe oppression that happens in the United States, what happens as a secret can go along for a long time until people realize it. This is why, for example, uh, the, the Martin Luther King, the protest, the civil rights movement, part of the reason why these peaceful protests were so powerful and part of the point of them was to bring out in public view on national television what was happening in secret. That people were being beaten, mistreated, abused. And so if they could protest peacefully and if people could see some of the treatment that they received, they would say, this isn't good. We've got to do something about it. Right? And so what's happening here is it's happening in secret so that people, maybe their consciences won't be seared, so they won't know what is going on. Now, the irony behind all of this is that the Pharaoh wants to kill the boys because he sees the boys as a threat, but he clearly doesn't see the girls as a threat. Why? Because especially in this culture and even today, uh, girls could be used, they could be manipulated, they could be controlled, uh, they could be used for all sorts of things. He didn't see them as a threat, and yet... What we're going to see is that it is because of women that Israel's strength and power is going to grow. So what hap- what's happening here is that you have the midwives of Israel, so the, the women that help the women who are in birth give birth. Uh, at this point, they were led by old, two older women named Sifra and Pua. Uh, they're led by them, and they feared God. For, so for whatever they knew about God, for whatever reason, they said, we're not going to do what Pharaoh is telling us to do, which, by the way, was extremely courageous because they were likely thinking, once he finds out, we are going to be killed. They're not going to do that, though. They're going to trust God and obey God and do what God would want them to do instead of what Pharaoh would want them to do. Now, this is massively significant because we might not pick up on this if we didn't know, but in the first five chapters of Exodus, other than Moses, Sifra and Pua are the only two other people named by name. They're the only people mentioned by name in the first five chapters of Exodus. What would have likely happened as the ancient Israelites would be reading the story of their founding and what happened to them, that, that Sifra and Pua would have been honored, they would have been celebrated, they would have been venerated because of their courage. Likely, whenever the story of Exodus was told, these two women would have been included in that story. So they decide not to do what Pharaoh tells them to do, and so here's what happens next, verse 18. So the king of Egypt uh, summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now what's happening here, again, when we read scripture, what we read in like a few seconds sometimes happens in years, or in this case, verses 8 through 22, actually decades. And so we can kind of miss out on how long this is actually happening. It probably took at least a couple of years for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to realize that the little boys were not being killed. In ancient cultures, for most of human history, uh, boys and girls, little boys and girls, look the same, dress the same. There's, there's really no way that you would have known if the boys or girl, boys were being killed and the girls weren't. And so this likely took a few years of happening before Pharaoh finds out what is happening here. And so uh, they come, so they, they arm themselves with a plan to tell Pharaoh what's happening when he asked them why this hadn't 
happen. Now, it's not likely that, uh, it's, not, it's not true that the, somehow the, the Hebrew woman just gave birth too quickly. Uh, they probably had shared what was going on, and, and either they didn't tell Pharaoh, or what also possibly could have happened is that the midwives could have told the Egyptian or the, the Israelite women, when you give birth, do not call a midwife until after you give birth to the child so that we can't do what Pharaoh is telling us to do. So for whatever reason, however they made it happen, that's what happened. Now, it's important to note as well that in ancient culture, women essentially were considered subhuman. They were considered less than. You could trade a woman for uh, uh, property. You could trade a woman for weapons. You could trade women and girls for any sorts of things that you might want, right? You could trade them for cattle, for animals, and whatever you want. And yet what we see happening here that is the power of God working through women that is going to grow and to strengthen Israel. Right? To us, in our culture, we might not think anything significant that is happening here. But to the original readers, this would have stuck out to them like a red flashing light. That it is women, reviewed as less than, that are powerfully advancing the mission of what God wants to do through the Israelites. In fact, we see this in the first couple of chapters of, 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 of Exodus, that it's women that is furthering the mission. We see it in this chapter, that it's the midwives. In chapter 2, we're going to see it's, uh, uh, it's Moses' mother who saves Moses. But then we're going to see it's Moses' daughter. And then we're going to see Pharaoh's own daughter who adopts uh, Moses himself, right? Pharaoh's own daughter uh, that is playing the part in helping Israel advance, Right, so what's happening here is that it is women, not the men at this point, that are being courageous. Now, I think it's interesting as a side note. In our culture today, when you talk about the characteristics of a man and a woman uh, in 2020, first of all, you get in trouble for that, so maybe be careful. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Men and women are different, and I think it's, it's good to, to, say, to talk about the differences. I have a five-year-old son and a, or five-year-old daughter and two-year-old son, and yes, they have different personalities, but they are just different. Right? They are different. Right? And so sometimes when we talk about what, what it means to be a man, we might use characteristics like courageous and a leader and strong. And yet when we, and, but we also oftentimes when it talks about being a man, we often also use feminine characteristics. Right? We might say a, a, a man that loves God is, is kind, is tenderhearted, is gracious. Right? So when you talk about what does it mean to be a man, you'll often have masculine characteristics and feminine characteristics. And yet oftentimes when we talk about what does it mean to be a woman, You'll hear things like being kind and being generous and being tenderhearted, right? You hear a lot of feminine qualities, but yet we never seem to give women masculine qualities. We don't talk about being courageous. We don't talk about being a leader. We don't talk about being strong. And yet if you were to define Sifra and Pua and these Egyptian or these Israelite midwives, that is exactly how you would define them, right? You wouldn't define them as kind of being in their own corner, not doing anything. You would find women that are strong and courageous. Again, created in God's image, we all possess these qualities, Right? So they don't do what Pharaoh says. Israel grows, and significantly, what does it also say? That the, that the midwives, that God gave the midwives families. Now, if you were a midwife in ancient culture, in this culture, in ancient Israel, you were a midwife for one of two reasons. One, you never married, or two, you had never had kids of your own. Those are the women that would be midwives. And yet, what we see happening here is that through their oppression and now their faithfulness, now the midwives are having kids, right? God is moving through this oppression. God is moving through this oppression, and here's what this shows us, and this is why it's significant for us to understand all that is happening in this text. What, it shows us is that, what this text shows us is this, that nothing can stop the movement of God. Nothing that you do or I do or the most powerful person in the world who was Pharaoh in a dictatorship, this wasn't a democracy, whatever he says goes, nobody tells him no, he never does not get what he wants. Nothing can stop the movement of God. 
And what we see happening here is yet, and actually in spite of that, every time Pharaoh does try to stop it, it actually gets worse. It actually gets worse for him and his agenda. Now, when we say this idea that nothing can stop the movement of God, this can be either a comfort for us or it can be a warning. Knowing that God is in control, that his plans will come to fruition, can either be a comfort to us or it can be a warning. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, this is a comfort that when life is hard and difficult and not going the way that you want it to go or I want it to go, that God is still king, that he's still Lord over everything, that he is still in control and good and can be trusted. Even in the moment, if we don't see what God is doing and how God is working and how this will work out uh, for the good of God's people right now, we know because he is in control, that is ultimately what's going to happen. But yeah, this is also a warning. For those of us that maybe don't have a relationship with God, that don't know Jesus, that anything that we try to do to go our, to advance our own agenda, to go our own way one way or one day, will fall short, will fail because God is in control, not you and not me. It's a warning to us to follow and trust in God's kingship and not our own. And this is the good news of the gospel, right? The gospel is that God is over all things, that Jesus is Lord, that he has come for us to give his life through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. You and I can experience the grace and mercy of God, not because of our goodness and our good deeds and our efforts, but because of his. And so it's an invitation to join in on who he is and what he is doing to experience the grace and mercy of God in ways that you could never do. I always love looking at pictures of the universe and see how massive and powerful it is to show us just how small we are, just how much we cannot impress God, just how much he does not need us, and yet he invites us into a relationship with him, right? Nothing can stop the movement in God. And God's grace and kindness is he does not lord that over us. He doesn't say, you better follow me or else. He says, I love you. I care for you in spite of all of your fallenness and all of your going your own way that I'm here and I've given you grace and compassion to join in on what I am doing for my glory and for your good. Nothing can stop the movement of God no matter how much we try, no matter how much political, political leaders may try, no matter what is happening in our lives, God is king and God is in control. And that is what we see happening here in Exodus chapter one. And so the last verse of Exodus chapter one, verse 22, it ends by saying this. Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. What we see happening here is that the planned genocide that happened in secret, but was not work, it was not working, was now put into public view for everybody to see and to know and to be a part of. It's, it's for all people to see. And so the question as we read this text even as we talk about God is using it, and that God can use our suffering for our good and his glory, but yet it still leaves us with questions. See, if you're reading this text, one of the things that jumps out to me is what are we supposed to do with this, right? Yes, Israel is growing, but at what cost? Slavery, genocide, but if God is all-powerful and he is all in control and his plans cannot be stopped, could he not have found other ways to further his mission of growing the kingdom of Israel so that the Messiah of the entire world could come through them? Or what about our own suffering? What about things that you've been through that are hard and difficult? And yes, you know that God can use it in, in good ways, but it does, if you could go back, you would trade that suffering. You would take it all away to avoid what was happening. Couldn't God found another way to work? Right? What we see happening here is what do we do when God does good things? but it doesn't make sense the means by which he does it. 
Uh, to that, here's what I would want us to know as we, have, as, we, as we address questions like this that all of us deal with. Here's what I want us to know. Uh, that doubt is normal when you can't see the full picture. Doubt, trust, following Jesus is normal when you can't see the, the full picture. Even knowing that God is good and that he can use it for his glory and that God is in control, that doesn't, that doesn't take away the pain that we're experiencing, right? If you are part of New City, you know my story that I was 19 years old, I lost my dad to a suicide, right? Every day of my life, I would change all of the, the good things that have come with that to have my dad back, right? And actually, because of going through something as difficult as that, it has allowed me to have conversations with other people who have gone through some very horrific and tragic things because they see someone who's also gone through something difficult. And I've sat through people, and I've heard stories that make my story seem like a walk in the park. I mean, I've heard some awful things, Right? And so God has used my story to allow, bring comfort to other people, but the question is why? Some of the things you have gone through, you're like, God, why did you do this? I think it's okay for us to know that sometimes we do not know. Sometimes we do not have an answer. Right? You and I are not God. You and I do not know what he knows. We don't see what he sees. We are finite human beings that only live in one place on the earth for a short amount of time. There's so much that we do not know. I kind of think of it this way. I have a five-year-old daughter and two-year-old son, right? I know immeasurably more than my five-year-old daughter. I'm smarter than she has. I've lived life longer than she has. I've read more than she has. Like, I just know a ton more than she does, right? And in the same vein, my five-year-old daughter knows a lot more than my two-year-old son, right? She's, she's, read, she's, she's been read a lot more books than he has. She can go to the bathroom. He can't, right? She can speak English. He can, he can say like 20 words. Like, she just knows more than she does, Right? So, so could it not be in our doubts and in our questions that an infinite God knows and sees things that we can't? Again, this does not answer all why. This does not take away the pain that we are experiencing, but it does tell us that God might be up to something that we can't see. And so, so with that, here's what this means for us. That the church, the church in general, and specifically our church, if you call New City Church home, should be the safest place for you to have doubts. This is the safest place for you to ask questions. This is the safest place for you to be angry and frustrated with God because all of us have been there. All of us know what it's like to have doubts and to have questions. And so collectively, we need to remember that doubt is a normal picture, is, the normal, is normal when you can't see the full picture. And if you have doubts and questions and you are not sure, I just want to let you know that you are welcome here, that you will not be judged for those things, that you will not be condemned for those things, that hopefully you will find people who will sit with you He'll agree with you and say, I know God loves us, but in this particular moment in time, I don't know why he allowed it. I don't know. And so with that, as we close Exodus 1, and we see horrific things, we see genocide, we see killing, maybe you're thinking of some hard things that you've been through or a loved one has been through. Here's what, if we, if we can end chapter 1 with all the difficult things, here's kind of the main point that I want us to take away from this chapter, and that's this. That faith is not the absence of doubt, but trusting God in the midst of it. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's not having all your questions answered and never wondering and never being frustrated, but yet it's trusting God in the midst of it. What's interesting is that when you see throughout Scripture this idea of, of having faith in God or believing in God or in the New Testament when it talks about believing in Jesus, uh, we, miss, we can miss what actually is going on there. See, when we, in our culture today, when we talk about this word belief, we, we typically use it to say, I'm going to believe in something that's not true, that's not possible, just because I want it to be true. So if my team's down by like 50 points and there's like, 
three minutes left in the game, pick your sport or whatever. I just believe in my team. Like, they're going to do it, right? People look at you. Like, that's not true, right? We use this, this word of belief to believe things that are impossible. Like, some people, especially in the Raleigh area, <clears throat> might say that they believe Carolina is better than Duke, right? We, we believe things. Oh, come on now. <clears throat> we believe things that aren't true sometimes, okay? <clears throat> NC State's better than Duke. <clears throat> See, right? So I'm saying, right? We believe things. That are not true. See, scripturally speaking, when we talk about, when scripture talks about belief, what it's really saying is trust. It's not saying belief, uh, believe against all, uh, all, you know, all sense of reasoning. It's not saying believe, even though it's not true, just to make yourself feel better. When it tells us to believe, it's actually telling us to trust. And so faith and belief and following Jesus is not the absence of feeling these things, but trusting that he is good, that he is in control in the midst of it. You see, God knows more than we do. He sees more than we do. And yet he, he's in control of things that we are not. And so as you and I, when we experience hard times, when we're struggling, when it's difficult, we're going to say, God, I'm going to trust you. Because even the alternative, or we, we talk about not trusting in God as if, well, that's the only thing. If you don't trust in God, what are we saying? I trust in myself. I trust in my financial situation. I trust in my super uh, uh, ignorant idea of the world and experiences that I do not have and talking to people that I, I do not know. We're saying, I trust in myself that one day when I stand before the king of, the king of all the heavens and the earth, that I'm going to say, God, I figured this out on my own. I didn't need you. You're going you're gonna to let me in because I know what I am doing, right? Faith is not the absence of doubt, but it's trusting God in the midst of it. And so I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know what difficulties you're going through, but I want to encourage you that God loves you where you are. He gives grace to you where you are. And so sometimes we follow him and we praise him and we worship him because life is good and we've seen his hand. And sometimes we do that because we're just trusting that God is good and he's going to move. So as we continue our time through Exodus, again, I want you to know that faith is not the absence of doubt, that you can have doubts and you can have questions, but it is trusting God's goodness even when we don't see it, even when we don't know what he's doing, because he cares for us and he is in control. Let's pray.